and welcome to another episode of The Growth Podcast. I am your host, Matt Bellotti, and today I am very excited to have Hannah Chaplin joining me, who is currently at uh, Pendo, which was through a recent acquisition, which she can give you a little bit more context on in a little bit. But today, we're going to talk about experimentation around pricing, which I'm really excited to talk about. Hannah, thanks, thanks for joining. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. I've been looking forward to this as well. Great. So maybe you want to give the audience a quick background on yourself? Sure. So I've worked in SaaS for a very long time, mainly like starting software and and SaaS companies. My last organization was called Receptive and our mission in life was to solve the big hairy problem of how other software companies should handle product feedback so they could make good decisions about what to build in their product. So I was the CEO and co-founder there for about four and a half years. And in May this year, we were acquired by Pendo. And they specialize in product analytics and guides for your customers, like in-app guidance. So the two things together, knowing what to build next, which was the receptive part, you know, coupled with what you've built, how that's actually used and how you guide users to get the most value out of the products, like fit really nicely together. So yeah, it's been a really, really exciting year so far. Obviously, over the years, I've had a lot of trauma around pricing, Matt, which is why we're talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is exciting. It does sound like it's been been quite the year. And then the pricing stuff hasn't stopped, you know, once... once. Oh, no. <laughs> it never ends. I mean, it drifts yeah. between pricing quite a lot. So we've been through this before. And I think that this is one of these topics where... People talk about like, oh yeah, you should change your pricing all the time or you should experiment with it. But it's so unclear how to do that because there are all these questions of, all right, well, if we're going to experiment with the pricing, what about for existing customers and, and all that? So could you give me like a high level like thesis behind the types of experiments that you've run? And then maybe we can like dig into how the company got on board and then some example experiments and, and what worked and what didn't. Yeah, sure. So I think you've teed that up really nice, like pricing. I've just always struggled with it for some reason. It, it, it is really difficult. So at a very tactical level, I'm thinking about how pricing evolved with Receptive from like day one. So day one, we didn't know the value of our product. We didn't know how to price it. So like a lot of people, we guessed. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, like, so unscientific. But for us, like when you've just built a product and you don't know how much demand there is for it, as part of the research Phase, I think it's really, really helpful to take money off people because if people are willing to pay for something, that's a really good sign, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, it means something. It means something, yeah. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of companies make early is they don't charge and then you can kind of get this like false demand for the product in some ways. Like this is premium model aside, that's kind of a whole different thing. But for us, we wanted to charge... So we did that and that was a good indication that there was some demand for what we were building, but the pricing was really low. It was it was like $99 down to $29. That's not even per user. That was just how much a package was. So it was great for kind of getting some early users on, but it didn't do any favors in that if you don't charge enough, people don't value what you're doing and it doesn't get enough attention in the organization. So we kind of decided to put the pricing up to get a bit more of a attention during the sale. Is that something you're familiar with at Drift? Yeah, we, we went through a very similar path. So we started early on and our very first customer ever, I remember being with one of our co-founders, Elias, and we were in a sales conversation and he asked the 
future customer to pull a $20 bill out of his pocket. And he did that. <laughs> and <laughs> it wasn't going to scale like that. And we started off and it was a low price point. And then, yeah, you start to realize like, all right, how many customers do we need at this price point to get to this value? And then if they're only paying $50 a month, how much effort are they really putting in? It's a weird, weird balance. Yes. Balance is, to- that is the word. That is totally the word. Balance, balance, balance. It's that balance between it's almost like I wish we'd always like charge loads more and given the early users a, a heavy discount or something because you need to incentivize those early users. When you're a new company and you've got no brand awareness, you've got no track record, you haven't really got any case studies, that's a really hard place to be in, isn't it? So it's like what like one of the levers you've got to pull during those early days to encourage people to trust you and give it a go is to find those enthusiastic early adopters who like trying new products and who are willing to pay a little bit. So that's kind of the route we went down, rightly or wrongly. I'd like to put a massive disclaimer in here that I think one thing I've really learned is that pricing depends so much on who your customer is and what sort of business you're trying to build as well. So you see people going down totally down the freemium route and monetizing later, and that works really, really well for some products and some markets. And then you see people doing the opposite, like charging tens and or even hundreds of thousands of dollars no free trial, just, you know, big book straight up. And it's a very different sale and it's a very different process. And I think when I say we've done a lot of experimenting with pricing, a lot of that was like learning who we were as a company and what value we added and what sort of sales suited us and the customer. And that's really hard. <laughs> yeah. So, so you mentioned that you started with the lower price point and then you were... Yeah saying, all right, it feels like people aren't valuing this enough. How do you start experimenting with asking for more? Is it like you ask your sales team or you yourself, Mm -hmm. the next call you're on, you just like throw out a higher number or do you go (laughs) change the thing on the pricing page and then see how people react? Like what, what is the path forward with that? Got it. So so it's a little bit of both. So um, like we were a really small team at at this point. There was me as my co-founder, Dan, he was more like he was building products at that point. And we had our first developer, Rob, who's amazing. He's still with us. And then we brought in customer success. So there was a really small, tight-knit group of us like figuring this out. And Ali, who was in customer success, actually is like, she's really good at the sales piece as well. And and Dan was, you know, on a drive to charge more. So between the three of us, I think first off, we did the experiment like on demos, like on the phone. Mm-hmm. Let's see let's test some different pricing here. And then once we'd found something that was going down kind of well with the market, that's at the point we we kind of published the pricing on the website. And, you know, we weren't charging like stupid money. I think I think at this point, the lowest price was 199. And again, it was like feature-based pricing. It wasn't seat-based up to kind of call us for enterprise. And we did start landing some of those bigger deals and it was more like custom pricing. Yeah, it was just it just felt like it felt like baby steps every deal we we kind of try something new and again very early days I think I think that's all you can do. There'll be people much better at this than me by the way. <laughs> <laughs> With the pricing. Yeah. Yeah, so and that then, was kind of like the process, yeah. Got it. And then as things grew and things developed more, did you end up changing things in the actual onboarding process to follow the pricing changes like how do you think about previous customers? Can you talk through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So so I said at the beginning, we were charging not enough. Then we stuck with the feature-based pricing, but we're charging more. 
And then that kind of pricing, that second stage kind of stuck for a couple of years. And the feature-based pricing, it did work really well because it allowed us to kind of flex and kind of take features off one kind of price plan and put them in another. And it gave us that flexibility we needed, which really helped during the sales process. But after a couple of years of that, we decided it would be good. You know, everyone started talking about product-led growth and more like self-service onboarding and this sort of thing. So wasn't actually that long ago, like January this year, we decided to kind of switch the pricing. I'm like, okay, what will happen if we do seat-based pricing, which is very different. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But we felt we needed to do something. We needed to mix it up a bit. And the reason behind that was we'd seen for our product, Land and Expand was working really well. So we'd often get organizations on at the lower price point deliver value and work really hard to make them a successful customer and you know getting everything they needed out of the product and then the upsell was coming so a lot of months we'd have negative churn because because of upsell basically so we wanted to kind of extend that model beyond landing people on the lowest price plan to what if we try and make that barrier to entry even lower so this is like the classic slack model right that's the company people talk about all the time get one person within a larger organization using your product, using it well successfully and then it like spreads like a virus that's probably not a nice analogy (laughs) (laughs) right so we decided to try that but we very much felt like the other half to that pricing experiment was the onboarding Mm-hmm. So we'd, we'd done really, really well with the customer success team. It's mainly just that. It was mainly, you know, one or two people. And Rebecca were both absolutely amazing. So we wanted to extend what they were doing kind of into the product. Because by this point, there was a lot to the onboarding and customer success that we'd really got down to like a fine art. And we're like, okay, this should live within the product. We should help users within our product a lot more. So that was kind of like thesis and I can't remember what the question was but that's how we got there (laughs) (laughs) oh dear so how'd it go so onboarding was really successful so what we did with the onboarding was again we couldn't have got here without the years of more manual work before it like working things out but where we got to with the onboarding is that you could sign up for an account through the website And then it was really personalized. So you were like, okay, I'm a product manager and my big pain point is managing customer feedback. And then based on that information, you'd get like a personalized onboarding experience. And then within like the app itself as well, we built a guide where it kind of took you through the steps to get set up and to get to value as quickly as possible based on your pain point. That was really good that was brilliant because like there's nothing more beautiful than getting a new piece of software and feeling like your needs are met like really quickly mm-hmm. so that was really successful with the pricing it didn't really help i felt like we'd almost gone back four years in the really you know, all, yeah honestly like all the same sales objections when our pricing were too low kind of came up again and it didn't solve any of the problems we had with the feature-based pricing. Interesting. Why do you think that was? Why do you think that the seat thing caused those objections to come back? I honestly think it it goes back to what I said earlier. It's that making sure that pricing works for you as an organization, but works for the customer as well. And the seat-based pricing didn't work 
because it didn't work for the customer and it didn't work for us. So with our products, it's something that's built like for an organization. It's not for an individual user in the same way that, you know, you can buy, I'm thinking for software in the same space. As an individual like product manager, I could get a tool and do road mapping on my computer for myself. But what Receptive was doing is it's about taking product feedback from your customers, your teams, your market, and bringing all of that data together to make good business decisions with. So it affects every team. Every team use it. And as an individual in an organization, if it's just you using it, we were finding by not charging enough and by not getting enough awareness of the kind of sale and the changing process required to be successful with a product like Receptive, because that price point wasn't there and we just had an individual, it, it never really gained traction, which isn't a good experience for us. And it was really hard for the single user that wanted the software that was in a big company. Does that sound right? Yeah, Obviously. yeah, it makes sense. So I think like, if, if you're an individual person in a, in a larger company and, and this piece of software affects like process in some way, like business process, then you need people to be on board with that. So the downside is the sale can take longer. But the upside is that that product is really, really sticky once it's in. So, yeah, that's kind of like, that's the trade-off. And I just think that that lower seat-based pricing, it, it wasn't doing anyone any favours, and especially not, not the customer, because they were really struggling to get buy-in. And we were really struggling to support them properly. So it, it, just, that's, it just felt like not a good move at all, to be honest. Yeah. And why exactly was the buy-in easier... Or was it just because there was no mental hurdle of like, oh, we have to think about ahead of time who is going to have access to this thing? Is it purely like a friction thing in the mindset of how the customer is going to adopt it? Or is there something else to it? Yeah, I definitely think that's part of it. And, And the other side of it is like, if you know your software delivers a lot of value and you're charging properly, then it gets more attention. So it's not like something you can just throw on a credit card and forget about the sale has to go and be signed off by a VP or someone who's like, who then is behind the project and behind the change. And again, that comes to the type of product we were selling. It requires like a process change in, in the organization. It's not a tool that someone can sit and use on their own in the day-to-day job. Well, they could, but it wouldn't add as much. It wouldn't be as successful at all. And that's why, that's why it annoys me a bit when people talk about this product-led growth thing. And the examples that are always pushed are the freemium ones and, mm. you know, just this self-serve model and it's freemium and it's, oh, you know, seat-based pricing. Have you seen much around, around that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I agree that the freemium concept or free trial has become pretty synonymous with product-led, at least from, from what I've heard. It does make sense that there is this line around how is the customer going to think about this tool? And is it something that is like a, one of the terms that we use at Drift is there's like a single player mode of our product and a multiplayer mode. And so if you have, yeah, like if you have a single player mode, then seat base doesn't make a ton of sense because like a person could use it or, or many people could use it. But if you have a multiplayer mode, then seats might make more sense. Or it could be the inverse depending on the market, right? The multiplayer mode only works if there is not friction in terms of all those players using it versus the single player mode. Does that make sense? I feel like I- yeah. No, I like that. I like that analogy. And I think it very much depends what sort of what sort of game you're playing, if you like. Because if you can 
the other thing with seat-based pricing is that people can sometimes be like not want people to access it access your software because they have to pay more and sometimes that works and sometimes it really doesn't so if you have a, a piece of software that you want to get across the organization as quickly as possible it sometimes doesn't make sense to do the pricing based on seats it might make sense to do feature-based pricing and get that product across everyone and then there's no friction you're like it doesn't cost more to add new users just get everyone on it and then you can upsell from there it's the land and expand thing again so you see there is no simple answer in pricing is there yeah. <laughs> it yeah. really isn't. not at all i mean and then you think about a company like zoom that has seat base but also has extremely low friction for a new user to adopt because they yes. get a 40-minute free thing. But then again, it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning. It's like when you're early on, you just kind of like guess at pricing. That's kind of what Zoom did. They just like picked a number and ran with it. I mean, granted, there's way more thought into it these days, but they just kind of picked a number and it just like worked out well. <laughs> yeah, I read, I, read, uh, I think First Round Review did a really good interview with the CEO of Zoom. I don't know if you saw it, but it was brilliant. It was talking about how he like wouldn't travel anywhere for like any investor meetings. He did it all through Zoom. I was like, genius. Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't do any face-to-face meetings. I was like, in the case of a product like Zoom, that just makes sense, doesn't it? That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really tough. It's pricing. What's the stage you're at at Drift with your pricing? I'd say that we've gone through many iterations, like 10 plus, if not more. And it's been pretty stable for a while. I think we figured out what works really well for our customers that also works for us as a business. And so the pricing has been pretty stable for the past eight or nine months. And I think one thing that's really important, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are around this, is to find ways to make sure that you take care of your existing customers. If you have a price change or price increase, I think some companies really mess this up around like, all right, we're going to raise our prices. That means everyone who's already paying us, your bill is twice as much now. (laughs) Yeah. Surprise. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, great. So that, we had an experience like that this year, actually, with one of our uh, software suppliers. And it's not a nice experience. So what, what we did is we kept everyone who was on the kind of old pricing mm-hmm. remained on their price plan. Like we did not make any changes there because it just didn't, it didn't feel right and it didn't feel good to change pricing. And actually what we did is we looked at where our existing users would have fit on the new seat-based pricing and kind of had a look from there. And it it was roughly, it roughly lined up. So like, okay, this is good. So we did that as an experiment, but we also did it. We didn't push new, our existing customers to upgrade to the new pricing because it doesn't feel good. It's okay in some circumstances. I think it depends on the level of price change. But we had one of our vendors earlier this year and we just signed another annual contract with them. It was maybe even a two-year contract. And then literally, I think it was like the day or two days after, they were like, surprise, you've got to pay three times as much now. (laughs) And we were like, we just signed like this multi-year contract with you on agreed pricing. And now days later you're trying to like triple it that that didn't feel like a nice experience as a customer as a business it's totally in your remit to put the pricing for existing users and sometimes you've, you've totally got to do it i'm not saying it's wrong i'm saying that you've got to manage that process carefully 
work with the customer success team to make that smooth transition and not kind of like a jolt. You've just got to think about what it's like for the customer. So yes, do have that conversation, but do it in the right way. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think one funny, I'll call it funny thing about it. (laughs) Like when you do take it upon yourself to take care of all your existing customers and not jump the price on them. And if you are a very iterative company, you wind up carrying a lot of legacy plans and legacy billing. And it winds up being a lot. Like our team has to think about these things a lot with any new like product feature rollout or additional pricing change. There are 12 different versions of grandfather plans that existed in the past. So if we update the billing page and the product, the billing page has to handle all those old accounts. So it's not an wow. easy thing to do to make sure to take care of all those existing customers. But as you're saying, I strongly believe it's the right thing to do because it's unfair to someone shows up with expectations of I could pay this amount. This is what, this is what I'll be getting. And you got to find one, one way or another to do right by those people. Definitely. And, and like I said, it doesn't mean not raising the price for those people. Like, yeah. like particularly in SaaS, you product, the way products develop and add more value is like sometimes every other week, there's something that adds more value to your customers that you're releasing for them. So I'd say go about in the in the right way, prove where you're adding more value like have that conversation, but don't just go like, that's more money now, please. You know, (laughs) if you're like, look at all these great new features that you're now using, you know, look at all the extra value we're adding because our products developed, here's our new pricing structure. You know, at renewal time, we need to talk about moving on this planet. I think, you know, that, that feels like a bit more give and take to me. It's like, we're giving you more, you should pay more. There's a good argument to be had there, isn't there? An email the day after you've signed an annual contract is not cool. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Any other thoughts around pricing or that, that we didn't get a chance to cover here? I'd like to talk to you about what do you, because I feel like I've muddled my way through pricing and it has been really amazing since the acquisition at Pendo. There's been people who they know how to do pricing properly. I have learned a lot and it's been amazing watching kind of like the experts at, at work thinking through how to price receptive, which is going to become Pendo feedback in September, like how, how that fits, how it should be priced. Like from your experience, do you have any like good best practices around pricing? I'm, I'm thinking through like profit wells are really good resource, isn't it? Yeah. If, if you'll know Patrick, obviously, and profit well, that's a really, really good resource when it comes to pricing. Yeah. If you've got any best practices we can, we can share with anyone. So we have an in-house extreme expert on the topic. I don't think that we put together any like public content around how we think about pricing and approach it. I do know that we've used and lean on ProfitWell's content mm-hmm. resources a lot to understand yeah. benchmarks and how to approach it and you know what the different levers are and the whole like value-based pricing system. Aside from that, I don't have anything except to say that While our team was exhausted by the constant pricing changes early on, like it was every few months. (laughs) It was every few months for the first two years, two and a half years. And I think there was a lot of fatigue across the organization around it. And now that we've kind of come out the other side and found something that really works well, I think our business is in just such a better place because of it. And because we were 
relentless in finding the thing that worked and weren't settling with, all right, you know, this, this pricing system's causing some friction, but like, we'll just deal with it. It was, all right, this is causing friction. What's causing friction about it? Great. This part's not working. This lever is unclear. And right. And so we would just adjust it all the time. And for anyone in that stage, my advice would be to, to kind of keep pushing on it because it will help you get to the thing that works really well, but everyone will be very exhausted. <laughs> like the, <laughs> our guy that leads pricing would say, all right, we're going to have another round of pricing next month. And everyone would do the whole like throw up their hands like, oh, again. But it has paid off. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, it's necessary, isn't it? It's definitely necessary. And I think as long as you keep the customer in mind as you're going through it it's okay like I think if you start changing stuff all the time it's really crazy and unclear like even in the early stages there's a way to manage it isn't it so I think if you keep the keep thinking about the customer as you're doing it then it's necessary isn't it it's totally necessary because you just you're just having to test and especially with something like drift or what we're doing with receptive it's quite new while there's similar products in in the space no one's quite done what Drift's done and no one quite did what Receptive did. So you don't really know what the willingness to pay is. So right. you've got to work it out and you've got to test it and try it. It's not like a, uh, you know, a CRM. Everyone knows what value a CRM delivers. Everyone knows roughly how much you should pay for a CRM. With something like Drift and Receptive, it's very different. So no one really knows. <laughs> Right, right. And you can look at other people in the market that are doing things similarly. However, how many of them have turned into a super successful company and they like how many of them actually know what they're doing, right? Like they could also very much be in the midst of changes every couple of months because they don't really quite know either. So you can anchor yeah. in other people, but you're right. Like there is no like guidebook of this is exactly how to do it for your business and your market. Exactly. And and I think the other thing I'd like to say is that I, I, pricing is never perfect. You're never going to get it right for every potential customer. Um, it just, it has to be right enough, but the perfect pricing model doesn't, I don't think it exists. Do you think so? <laughs> I, just I, don't think so. I, I don't think so. I, <laughs> I also watched, cause I spent some time at HubSpot and they also changed their pricing quite often. And I would guess that to this day, I mean, I was there like five years ago. Mm-hmm. I would guess to this day, they still would probably say yes. that they haven't figured it out either. And they're still changing constantly too, because I think to build off your point of the perfect pricing doesn't exist, I think the market changes so quickly these days and there are always competitors and you know updated business models and someone offering something that you do for free, right? It's this ever-changing landscape that even if you find something that's perfect right now, that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect a year from now, let alone six months from now. Exactly. And, and you'll find like understanding who your target is and what sort of company you want to be really helps because you'll find that pricing for your product in the same market can be different based on the company size. Like mm-hmm. a big enterprise organization doesn't want their whole company relying on a free piece of software most of the time. They yeah. want to pay for professional services. They want onboarding specialists. They want like 24-hour support. They want to give you money to do a good job. And then if you go right down to the other end, a startup's not going to pay you what an enterprise is going to pay. They just want to have a play with your product for free and see if it works. Which like HubSpot, like you mentioned, is a good example because they've had that tricky job of working out pricing for 
like enterprise pricing, but then they deal with loads and loads of SMEs as well. And I've talked to a few founders about this and, and they tend to have, from what I've seen anyway, a lot of people will have their kind of SME pricing on the website, but then behind the scenes, they're doing all these massive bespoke enterprise deals. And you don't see that on the marketing website, you'd never guess. So yeah, I think a lot of people just, you know, change the pricing a lot more than what you can gather from the pricing page. Yeah. And that's hinted by a lot of those pricing pages these days have, you know, the four tiers of pricing and then the one all the way to the right says, you know, above this number, contact yeah. us. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So yeah, it's definitely hard, but that, I mean, that pricing we ran in January, I don't, I didn't see that as a failure because we learned something. Mm-hmm. We learned that that wasn't the direction we should be going. And if we hadn't been acquired, we would have gone back to the feature-based pricing. So that was the the kind of best fit for, for what we were doing. But the other side of the experiment, that, that onboarding, that personalized like in-app guidance and onboarding was like, that really, really, really works. So I'd, I'd invest in that a hundred times over. That was perfect, but not perfect. I can't use that word. <laughs> yeah, we just it. Said well. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's perfect, but it worked really well for the business in that it took a lot of tasks that we did for every customer off the CS team and it was a really, really good experience for the customer as well. It, it, it worked. And I can't think of many situations where that, that wouldn't work well. Whereas pricing, yeah, would have, would have gone back to the drawing board on that one. Yeah, I think that is a good note to end on, unless, unless you have any other things to add. No, that's, that's great. Thank you very much. Cool. Well, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for for joining. This was a a fun conversation. We got to riff on a a bunch of things related to pricing, which is always a fun, murky, complicated (laughs) subject. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Matt. See you soon. All right. See ya. And for everybody listening, thank you so much. As always, if you have any feedback, questions, this is my same spiel that I give every single week. You know where to reach me at matt at drift.com. Thanks so much. And I'll catch you on the next episode.